Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we crisper weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Lachlan Watmore talks about ancient engines and machines. But first, here's news of spider amplification, edited hamsters and trustworthy fakes. Spiderweb microphones. Researchers from Bingham University, Cornell University and the Argonne National Laboratory in the US have discovered that not only can spiders detect vibrations in their webs from movement of insects, but they can hear sounds from the air that vibrate their webs, outsourcing their hearing. In experiments over five years, the spiders turned, crouched or flattened out in response to sounds in the air. The researchers hope to copy the spiders to design extremely sensitive bio-inspired microphones for use in hearing aids and mobile phones. The team have previously designed microphones based on mimicking the way insects hear. Spiders can detect minuscule movements and vibrations through sensory organs on their tarsal claws at the tips of their legs, which they use to grasp their webs. Orb weaver spiders are known to make large webs, creating a kind of acoustic antenna with a sound-sensitive surface area that's up to 10,000 times greater than the spider itself. The researchers used Birmingham University's anechoic chamber, a completely soundproof room under the innovative technologies complex. They collected orb weaver spiders from windows around the university campus and had these spiders spin a web inside a rectangular frame so they could position it where they wanted. At first they tried a pure tone sound, three metres away at different volumes to see if the spiders responded. Surprisingly, they found spiders can respond to volumes as low as 68 decibels, about the sound of a normal conversation. For louder sound, they found even more types of behaviours. Next they placed the sound source at a 45 degree angle to the web, to see if the spiders behaved differently. They found that not only are the spiders able to work out the location of the sound, but they can tell the direction of the sound with 100% accuracy. The researchers used laser vibrometry and measured over a thousand locations on a natural spider web, with the spider sitting in the centre under the sound field. The results showed that the web moves with sound almost at maximum physical efficiency across an ultra-wide range of frequencies better than all previously known eardrums. The team placed a mini-speaker five centimetres away from the centre of the web where the spider sat, and two millimetres away from the web plane. Close, but not touching the web. This allowed the sound to travel to the spider both through the air and through the web. The researchers found that the sound wave from the mini speaker died out significantly as it travelled through the air, but it propagated readily through the web without dying down much at all. The volume was still at around 68 decibels when it reached the spider. Four out of 12 spiders responded to this web-borne signal, so the spiders could hear through the webs. 
By crouching and stretching, spiders may be changing the tension of the silk strands, thereby tuning them to pick up different frequencies. By using this external structure to hear, the spider could be able to customise it to hear different sorts of sounds. Future experiments may investigate how spiders make use of the sound they can detect using their web. The team would also like to test whether other types of web weaving spiders also use their silk to outsource their hearing. The paper was titled Outsourced Hearing in an Orb Weaving Spider that Uses Its Web as an Auditory Sensor and was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Edited Hamsters Researchers at Georgia State University used CRISPR-Cas9 to knock out the hamsters' AVPR1A receptors so that they can't respond to vasopressin at all. In mammals, vasopressin and the receptor at axon, called AVPR1A, regulate social behaviour ranging from pair bonding, cooperation and social communication, to dominance and aggression. The team expected that when they eliminated vasopressin activity, this would reduce both aggression and social communication. However, the edited hamsters began communicating much more between littermates and became more aggressive, both males against males and females against females, the hamster way. In hamsters, aggression is shown by chasing, biting and pinning members of the same sex. Social communication in hamsters is shown by flank marking, which they do by arching their back and rubbing their flank glands vigorously against objects in the environment. In previous scientific studies, knocking out the AVPR1A receptors in mice and voles reduced aggression and social communication. However, the Georgia State University team found that in their own mice, edited to knock out the AVPR1A receptor, aggressive behaviour was no different than in wild mice. The Syrian hamsters used in these experiments are the same species that first showed us that vasopressin affects social behaviour, especially aggression and communication. It was thought that vasopressin increases social behaviours by acting within a number of brain regions, so naturally it was thought that blocking vasopressin would reduce the social behaviours. Hamsters are a better model for human behaviour because their social organisation is closer to humans than the social organisation of mice. Hamsters' stress response is more like that of humans than it is of other rodents. They release the stress hormone cortisol just as humans do. They also get many of the cancers that humans get and hamsters are vulnerable to COVID-19 just like humans. Vasopressin has been used as an experimental treatment to improve social communication for people living with autism. The hamster experiment shows that the activation of the AVPR1A receptor by vasopressin may lead to the inhibition of aggression and social communication rather than increasing it. The researchers hope that this new understanding of the role of vasopressin could be used to help a wide array of neurological conditions from autism to depression. As you can imagine, media outlets are going with headlines about angry hamsters. CRISPR editing accidentally turns hamsters into angry bullies. Surprise as gene-edited hamsters turn hyper-aggressive. To genetically engineered aggressive monsters. Rather than that the neurology of social behaviour is more complicated than we thought, and CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing is helping us understand it better. 
The paper was titled CRISPR-Cas9 Editing of the Arginine Vasopressin V1A Receptor Produces Paradoxical Changes in Social Behaviour in Syrian Hamsters and was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Trust me! Researchers at Lancaster University have found that photorealistic faces generated by an artificial intelligence program are rated as more trustworthy by people than real faces. It used to be that computer-generated faces had a dead-eye look that triggered the revulsion of the uncanny valley, of something that looks human, but we deeply distrust as a fake. You can see this in movies like Polar Express, The Adventures of Tintin, and Beowulf. The characters look very realistic, but their eyes say that nobody's home. However, with the rise of neural network-based artificial intelligence software, computers can now create photorealistic faces and deep-fake them into life. Generative Adversarial Networks, GANs, G-A-N-S, pit two neural networks, a generator and a discriminator, against each other. The generator starts with a random array of pixels and by trying over and over again, learns to synthesize a realistic face. On each time it tries, the discriminator learns to distinguish the synthesized face from a library of real faces. If the synthesized face is distinguishable from the real faces, then the discriminator penalizes the generator. If it's not distinguishable from a real face, then the generator is rewarded. This creates a feedback loop that lets the system generate very realistic faces of people who never were. You can have a look at the GANs in operation generating synthetic faces on the website thispersondoesnotexist.com. The researchers wanted to find out if people had a way to tell the difference between real faces from the library and faces generated from the style GAN2 software, and how trustworthy people would rank the synthesized faces. The participants in the study were recruited online from Amazon's Mechanical Turk Master Workers. They were told they'd be paid $5 for their time and an extra $5 if their accuracy was in the top 20% of responses. In the study, 315 participants classified, one at a time, 128 of the 800 faces as real or synthesized. The average accuracy was 50%, which is chance. For real faces, the mean accuracy was higher for male East Asian faces than female East Asian faces, and higher for white male faces than white female faces. For both male and female synthetic faces, white faces were the least accurately classified, and male white faces were less accurately classified than female white faces. The researchers suggest that maybe white faces are more difficult to classify because there are many more of them in the photo library that the software is trained on, which would make it easier for the software to make them more realistic. A second run of the experiment with another 315 participants showed the same results. For the third experiment, 223 participants rated the trustworthiness of 128 faces taken from the same set of 800 faces on a scale of 1, very untrustworthy, to 7, very trustworthy. People on average found that the synthetic faces were 7.7% more trustworthy than real faces. This is statistically significant. On a much smaller scale, 
black faces were rated as more trustworthy than South Asian faces, but otherwise there was no effect across race. Women were rated as significantly more trustworthy than men by more than the difference between synthetic and real faces. A smiling face is more likely to be rated as trustworthy, but 65.5% of the real faces and 58.8% of synthetic faces were smiling. So facial expression alone can't explain why synthetic faces are rated as more trustworthy. The researchers suggest that the reason might be that synthesized faces tend to look more like average faces, which themselves are deemed more trustworthy. According to previous research, they point to a 2014 study titled What is Typical is Good? The Influence of Face Typicality on Perceived Trustworthiness. This study showed that we tend to trust typical or average faces rather than people who visually stand out. The researchers are concerned about the ethics of such software being loose among the general public. That makes it easier to fake people doing things they never did, that is, events that never happened. On the other hand, they're also concerned that the existence of deep fakes can be used to deny real events and recordings of real things famous people really did say and do. They're hoping for techniques to be developed to more easily tell fakes from the real thing. In my opinion, they've missed two other ethical points. One is that they used workers from Amazon's Mechanical Turk Masterworkers, which is an exploitative employment program that treats people like machines for outrageously low pay. This is an unethical employment program that shouldn't have passed Lancaster University's Office for Protection of Human Subjects and Ethics Committee. The second point is that their discovery makes it possible to train neural networks to generate ever more trustworthy faces, possibly including more biases than just typicality. This would allow marketers and propagandists to generate hyper-trustworthy characters that hack our hindbrains so that we just implicitly trust them, which could be used to manipulate us beyond Cambridge Analytica's wildest dreams. The paper was titled... AI-synthesized faces are indistinguishable from real faces and more trustworthy, and was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And finally, monkeypox is airborne. Monkeypox used to be a rare disease until in the last few weeks around 100 people infected with the virus have been found in 12 countries outside of Africa, where the disease has been known for decades. Monkeypox is a close relative of smallpox. Both of them have been shown to be mainly spread by aerosol, in addition to close contact with skin, clothing and bedding. There are two versions of monkeypox known. One has a 1% fatality rate like COVID-19. The other has a 10% fatality rate. But nobody has the information to know which it is that's spreading. Monkeypox had never been known to spread so quietly and quickly around the world before. Monkeypox is a DNA virus, as opposed to RNA viruses like COVID. DNA viruses mutate more slowly, but they have a bigger repertoire of adaptation stored in their DNA, so they don't need to mutate to change. The way this monkeypox has spread so quickly suggests that it's different in some way 
to the old monkeypox. Smallpox vaccination stopped around the world by 1980. Fortunately, there's a specific monkeypox vaccine, and the old smallpox vaccine also gives 85% protection against infection with monkeypox. But the smallpox vaccine has an undesirable side effect, so the monkeypox-specific vaccine is preferred. Since monkeypox is not a completely new virus, we also have antiviral drugs that we know work really well to treat the infection. Monkeypox was originally named in 1970 because in the lab it jumped from monkeys to humans, but it's now thought perhaps it lives mainly in rodents. The fact is we actually don't know which animals it normally lives in that form a reservoir. The symptoms of monkeypox are fever, headache, shortness of breath, and a rash or lesions on the skin that turn into large blisters. There are various medical authorities around the world repeating their COVID mistakes and declaring that monkeypox is not airborne. But that contradicts the published science. The paper showing that monkeypox virus is stable in aerosols to hang in the air for 90 hours indoors is titled Susceptibility of Monkeypox Virus Aerosol Suspensions in a Rotating Chamber and was published in the Journal of Virological Methods. The paper shown that smallpox was airborne is titled What was the primary mode of smallpox transmission? Implications for biodefense. And was published in the journal Frontiers in Cellular and Infection Microbiology. Many nations, including Australia, have a small emergency reserve of the old smallpox vaccine, just in case. The UK has started using the old smallpox vaccine for close contacts of people infected with monkeypox. The US government has ordered millions of doses of monkeypox vaccine so they don't have to use the older vaccine with its undesirable side effects. Australia should also order some monkeypox vaccine, just in case. From 2008, Lachlan Watmore talks about ancient engines and machines. I've always loved engines, even though I haven't always understood them. I'd like to take a bit of time to look at engines down through the ages, and I'm going to start with the ancient world. Now, I'd like at this point to make a distinction between an engine and a machine. For our purposes, an engine is the source of power for a machine, which is a device that enables the engine to perform work. So, the expensively fuelled cylinders under your bonnet transmit energy to the wheels of your beast, and your beast carries on the work of your expensively fuelled cylinders. Well, duh, but here's the thing. If you want to look at the history of engines, the best way is to keep the distinction between engines and machines firmly in mind, because the interaction between the two over the centuries has been pretty complex. During the Renaissance, classical scholars defined six simple machines, which can be defined as the basic building blocks of all complicated machines. They were the lever, the wheel and its axle, the pulley, the inclined plane, the wedge, and the screw. These were regarded as the simplest mechanical devices to apply force to do work. All of them use only one applied force to do work on one load force. 
Ignoring wastage of energy, the amount of grunt you put in equals the amount of work you get out. These simple machines can then be combined to make more complex ones, such as a hand-cranked egg beater, which uses a lever and a wheel, or a bicycle, which uses wheels, levers and pulleys. The engines of the ancient world were thus almost entirely naturally occurring, and went by names like horse, mule, donkey, ox, litter-bearing slave, and fast-flowing stream and windy day. Wind and water were free and didn't have to be fed, although they were a bit unpredictable. The earliest known water wheels are Mediterranean in origin and date to around the 3rd century BC. They also arose separately in ancient China. Most water wheels were vertically mounted, or in other words, the axle was parallel to the ground. Other water wheels were horizontally mounted with the axle continuous with the spindle of a mill or other machinery. However, most were vertically mounted. Our engine, the flow of water, can be introduced to a water wheel by a variety of ways. There's the classic undershot wheel, where water strikes the bottom blades of the wheel, such as that utilised to harness a flowing stream. Undershot wheels are cheap to build, but dependent on a constant flow rate, and deriving their energy entirely from the torque provided by the stream don't provide much power. Then there's the overshot wheel, where water falls on the wheel from above, utilising gravity to give extra force. We've also got breast shot, where water is poured right on the front of the wheel, and back shot, where it's poured just in front of the top of the wheel. One man whose name will forever be associated with water is, of course, the great Greek scientist Archimedes. In the 3rd century BC, he invented the Archimedes screw, which is a basic pump. It can best be described as a screw inside a cylinder, which draws water through the cylinder when the screw is turned. The word engine in the ancient world is also associated with siege engines, the battering ram, the catapult, siege towers and the giant mechanical artillery of ancient armies. However, it wasn't until the advent of steam that engines became independent of outside sources of energy. Stay tuned. In the weeks to come, we're going to have a good look at the steam revolution. Thank you, Lachlan Watmore. What about that great unexplored continent at the bottom of our earth? larger than the United States and Europe combined. Already Antarctica has become a great scientific laboratory for men of all nations to discover great new land areas rich with natural resources. Antarctica is but one area of great promise for the future. What about the others? What about the sea? We have long sailed its surface and fished its depths. But at the very bottom is a land of undreamed of abundance, with enough food to feed the Earth's population seven times over. There are rich ores and minerals carried by submarine trains to process stations on the coast. There is the water itself to be drained from the sea and made precious rain to turn desert lands into fertile land. There will even be new areas for living and working. A whole new dimension of life for people of the future. Now, consider the thick, lush lands of the equator. Here, nature flourishes in its greatest abundance. Technology has finally led the way into the wild profusion of the jungle world. One day, this land will be transformed into land for farms and pastures for cattle. From the abundance of equatorial jungles to the barrenness of great mountain ranges, the future offers great promise. Once barriers to man's progress, 
The mountains will soon be traversed by multiple highways that will soar over canyons and cut through towering walls of granite. They will carry a life stream of minerals and other natural resources to the thriving industries of tomorrow. Highways, too, will open up the great expanses of desert lands, one day to be made fertile again by waters pumped from sea and river, from dam and mountain stream. The highways from great new centers of agriculture and industry will lead inevitably to the metropolis of tomorrow. Access will be easy to the heart of the city, the core. In and around great cities like this, will live many of the people of the future, a future of limitless hope and promise. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusion radio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including... Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 Triple C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7 LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2 XFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labeled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.